0: In this lecture, we would like to deal with the eschatology of victory in Dutch thought from Groen van Prinsterer in his attempt to beat back the overrunning of the French Revolution in Holland in the middle of the last century through Herman Barfink, who flourished until about 1925. Now, from 1700 to 1780, classic hard-line Dutch Calvinism began to decline in spite of the courageous writings and work of uh, Bernard de Moor and John Amarck. It was the age of the rise of increasing supranaturalism, uh, a dying orthodoxy devoid of the powerful spirit of God, Uh, increasing rationalism fed into this matrix by Immanuel Kant uh, and other rationalists from Germany it was going to flesh out in the 1770s in the writing of the great French atheistic encyclopedia of de la Matrie, Daubach, Diderot uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau and of course Voltaire it was going to lead indirectly to a shake-up in America uh, although the major shaking power would be reformed thought nevertheless even in America I believe a subsidiary role would be played by this uh, general movement I've been outlining and a direct role in 1789 in the French Revolution which you may recall was plotted and planned by the Illuminated Ones, the Illuminati, Kloetz, and uh, and Mirabeau, and others. uh, The Jacobin Revolution in France, which Lenin later in 1905, and then again in 1917, correctly regarded as the vanguard of the Communist International. Uh, It was succeeded during the 1890s in France, by the reign of terror and the guillotining of everybody that stood in their way until it almost radicalized in 1896 in the first uh, thoroughly communist revolution in France uh, under the leadership of um, uh and of his associates in France to be crushed only by the speedy and tiniest action of Corporal Napoleon Bonaparte, who later became Emperor of France, and instituted an authoritarian regime to prevent all of this bloodshed, but unfortunately not a Christian regime, uh, but a regime that was perhaps uh, uh, somewhat preferable to what it had replaced. Because what it replaced was the reign of terror in which a prostitute had been enthroned in Paris uh, as the goddess of reason, and in which according to Madame de Stael's diary, the Christian Sunday had been abolished. Place names reminding one of Christianity, Uh, first names, were all being changed. The names of the week were being changed, the names of the month of the year, a new order was being established the order of liberalism and of pre-socialism in France. But fortunately, God used Napoleon to crush the French Revolution and unfortunately used him also uh, to crush uh, remnants of Christianity in France and in other countries into which he spread outside of France. The uh, radical revolutionists, uh, Buonarotti and others, going into Italy in the form of the carbonari or the charcoal burners to emerge in Paris in 1840 with the Société de Saisons, the Society of the Seasons, who were used to influence Karl Marx and to convert him uh, first to uh, socialism in general and then later to dialectical materialism in particular, which later led to the focusing of this vicious anti-Christian movement in the emergence of the Communist uh, Manifesto in 1848, the various international movements through the 1860s, and then finally through the emergence of first anarchism and then radicalizing uh, left-wing social democracy in Russia in 1905, the emergence of the Bolsheviks and their takeover of Russia in the late uh, second decade of the 19th century, followed by the exportation of radical socialism, alias communism, from the Russian womb all over the world, so that today we have a situation that well over one third of the population of the people on this planet are under the control of this godless ideology. Well, now, all of this started, (laughs) I guess, somewhere around 1700 and has been building up ever since. But I would say the French Revolution is the greatest event in world history since the birth of Jesus Christ. Uh, And if I could rephrase it in questionable terms, I would say the French Revolution represents the birth of the Antichrist. Uh, So then... We need to see that as far as this affects Holland, and very, very marginally South Africa, fortunately, the French Revolution and its aftermath, the reign of terror, bubbled over into Holland, abolished Roman Dutch law, Calvinist law in, in Holland, and replaced it by the Code Napoleon, the Napoleonic Code, uh, abolished the Dutch Calvinistic monarchy for many years, and established in its place the left liberal Batavian <coughs> Republic, uh, abolished the church order of the Synod of Dort, and replaced it with the church order of uh, Demist. This reduced the church to little more than the status of being a department of the state and of the government. In other words, they had a minister of religion at the statist level who would look after the interests of the state, much as you have in the uh, communist-line countries today. All of this had terrible consequences in Holland for the independence of the church, which it had enjoyed, over against a favorable Calvinistic state in earlier days. The church became a department of the state, and then finally in 1812 and 1814 by regulation of the puppet king uh, the church was not even allowed to convene at the general assembly level without the say-so of political government it had consequences for the uh, for education education was no more Calvinist public education the way it had been in Holland it became uh, non-Calvinist and increasingly liberalizing public education, secular education. It had consequences for economics, the sturdy reliance and independence and dedication of the Dutch Calvinists of an earlier time to the principles of free enterprise and personal responsibility in economic matters to Almighty God were now replaced by planned economics. Statist economics, pre-Marxian socialism. It was at this critical time in Holland that round about 1830, God raised up one William Bilderdijk, B-I-L-D-E-R-D-I-J-K, who was a Calvinist poet, jurist, librarian, and historian, and who began to create a movement that would gather momentum to challenge these revolutionary principles, it was followed in 1840 by a godly converted Jew called Isaac de Costa, D-A-C-O-S-T-A, who once said, Kinderenchots, als ik na geest in deze eeuw harde slaap, dan kreeg ik zo een bange gevoel in mijn vermoed, which being translated means, Uh, children of God when I take a look at the spirit the wicked spirit of this age I get oh such a feeling of fear down in in my in my in my uh, feelings in my stomach Uh, but these two men William Bilderdeck and Isaac de Costa had a great influence on a much greater man the famous Gillamy Baron Grun van Prinsterer, G-R-O-E-N-V-A-N-P-R-I-N-S-T-E-R-E-R, 1801 through 1876, who was the famous mentor of the greatest brain of the 19th century, Abraham Kuyper himself. Now, Grun van Prinsterer's Parents were well off it uh, became apparent very quickly uh, that their little son was unusually talented already in 1823 at the University of Leiden in Holland he acquired the degrees of Doctor of Laws and Doctor of Literature in Holland you have to earn those degrees they are not paper doctorates in uh, 1829, he was appointed at the age of, of uh, 28 as secretary of the Dutch cabinet. Not bad. In this way, he became exposed to the political struggles of Holland at a time of increasing statism and liberalism and decline of Calvinism. He became more and more convinced that the false doctrines of the French Revolution were responsible for all of the confusion in Europe the last fifty years. Over against the doctrines of the revolution, he placed his anti-revolutionary Christian historical principles. In 1846, he uh, published his insightful handbook for the history of the fatherland. And the following year, he published his well known book, Unbelief and Revolution. It was in this latter work that he came to the conclusion that revolution is the fruit of a thorough skepticism which pushes the Word of God completely to one side. And he developed the motto, Tegen de Revolutie de Reformatie. Against the revolution, we are to place the Reformation. Now, religiously speaking, Grun came from uh, that branch of the Dutch church known for its moderate orthodoxy. In fact, uh, somewhat enlightened. Uh, however, he came into contact with men of the Swiss Reveil, uh, and particularly of the great Mel d'Aubigné, the writer of the famous uh, many-volume series on the history of the Reformation and the history of the Reformation in England there in Merle de Bonnier and the Swiss Reveille, he deepened spiritually and finally arrived at Calvinism. At least at that kind of Calvinism as it was experienced in the revivalistic Swiss circles. The thought uh, and the very idea and realization that the principles of the revolution had even infected the Dutch church alarmed him and he set about combating it, especially in his address to the General Synod of the Dutch Reformed Church. This was actually a plea for the restoration and repair of Christ's Church. Well, uh, about the same time in the fifteenth year of the existence of the Dutch Christian newspaper known as the Herald, de Herote, Under the editorship of Grun's young protégé, Abram Kuiper, there appeared two contributions from the pen of Grun concerning John Calvin. In these contributions, he followed the Calvin authority, Stirlian, and he spoke of the logic of the Christian. Under this, he dealt with the logic of believing science which knows of no other test stone than Holy Scripture. The logic of trusting by faith, trusting in all of the immovable promises of God. The logic of gratitude which never separates eternal predestination from the command to live holy and irreproachably before God. The logic of struggling against everything to God's dishonor, the logic of the reformation of the church and the reformation of the state, which will not permit anything to exist which does not acknowledge Jesus Christ as the uttermost lawgiver and king. Well now, said Grun, the Lord God controls every situation of life. A few years later, uh... Grun was speaking of the absolute predestination of God in all matters. Interestingly, he derived much impetus from a German Lutheran scholar, Friedrich Stahl, a man who, though a Lutheran, admitted that it was Calvin who had introduced the valuable new principle into Protestantism, namely that the glorification of God. Uh, Uh, is to be achieved through the control of all aspects of life of the Christian on the basis of the teaching of the word of God. God is present in history, present in the family, present in the church, present in statecraft, present everywhere, and is to be acknowledged everywhere, said the Lutheran Stahl, uh, quoting Calvin with approval. Groen van Prinstra picked this up and gave it further impetus. Well, Groen became extremely perturbed about the continual spiritual decline of his Dutch people. What is the reason, he asked, for the um, reticence with which the Dutch people listen to the preaching of the Heidelberg Catechism today? He was regarded by many as a rabble-rouser and a religious fanatic, but Grun was brought into contact with a whole circle of friends, with uh, Reverend Heldring, uh, with de Costa, and all of them clubbed together to establish an association of Christian voices. And it's very interesting to see that this association of Christian voices was not limited to Calvinists in Holland. Even though most Dutch people at that stage were Calvinists, or at least nominally so. No, this association of Christian voices consisted of uh, the Dutch State Church, Calvinist, the Dutch separatist groups such as the Christian Reformed Church, of Dutch Lutheran preachers, even of an Arminian Remonstrance preacher, and their star attraction, the special. Uh, gospel preacher, the Baptist Jan de Liefde. They were all together in the attempt to reclaim their beloved fatherland uh, for the Lord Jesus. In fact, there were even some milder Anabaptists there, and overseas visitors, representatives of the British Episcopalian Church. However, it was especially in the social theater that much was reached. Grun and his associates established homes for orphans, for fallen women, uh, and in the political realm, they launched the anti-revolutionary party with its own newspaper, The Dutchman. Let me say here, I think this was a terrible strategic mistake. You cannot fight the principles of the French Revolution effectively by establishing an anti-revolutionary party. What should have been established is a pro-Christian party. I think the later history of the anti-revolutionary party in always negatively opposing things and never positively coming out with a clear mandate from God's word or at least not sufficiently so has led to its horrible compromise today. But I'll get into that. Well, now, Grun was an influential Christian nobleman, lawyer, writer, and politician. He sought to apply and to develop these views of the great German Lutheran, Dr. Stahl, who himself had tried to guarantee the freedom of the various spheres of life by appealing to the law of creation as their charter. Grun, the leader of the anti-revolutionary Calvinistic political party, was the strong opponent of the Dutch liberal Thor Becker. Groen was the first Dutchman to distinguish the sphere sovereignty of the church and of the state and only later of the other various spheres of life, but the problem with Groen is that he sought to ground sphere sovereignty in national historical development rather than in the law of creation as found in the word of God. And that's why Grun had perhaps too high a regard for history and not sufficient regard for scripture when he called history uh, the flaming sword of the living God, almost giving a semi-special revelatory evaluation of history. Well now, Grun does not defend sphere sovereignty by appealing to creation, but to history. Here he follows the German Lutheran Stahl, who followed Martin Luther's uh, adage, cuius regio, eius religio. Uh, Whatever the religion of the political government of a territory, that is to be the religion of all the people of the territory. Obviously an unsatisfactory position. Grun wrongly regarded political government as a higher form of government than social government or family government. And here you see the germ of statism still present. However, Grun rightly opposes local political autonomy to state centralization and centralism. If he believed that political government was more important than family government, and that wrongly, he rightly insisted that the local government of the city council, is just as important as the federal government. He wrongly speaks of state sovereignty. I have real problems with that word, sphere sovereignty. I think we should reserve sovereignty to God alone. He should rather have spoken of sphere autonomy, in other words, laws from God for each sphere, rather than sovereign laws in each sphere. Uh, Grun's sphere sovereignty, he would have better caused Called as uh, um, sphere autonomy. And then Grun was too isolationistic. Another of his mottos was In Isolament kracht" in isolation lays our power. But I'm afraid that the hyper isolationism of Grun and the anti revolutionary party progressively cut it down to become so culturally and politically irrelevant in Holland that it could finally only survive first by moving further to the left and then finally by recently amalgamating with the Roman Catholic parties into the so-called Christian Democratic Alliance which no longer even pretends to be Calvinistic at all. But now the greatest impetus to Christian thought in the 19th century was undoubtedly given by Grun's prestigious protégé Abraham Kuyper. Kuyper was a many-sided Christian genius a preacher, a theologian, journalist, encyclopedist, educationalist, trade unionist, statesman becoming prime minister of his country. And he, 1837 through 1920, further worked out Groom's system of sphere sovereignty, better sphere autonomy, and elaborated his various views. He did so especially in his... uh, three major works, his three-volume encyclopedia of holy theology, his three-volume tomes on common grace, and particularly his not sufficiently appreciated and not yet translated into English, monstrous three volumes and beautiful pro reggae for the king. I'll say this, I have a little uh, pamphlet on Kuiper of some twelve pages uh, available, Abram Kuyper Kuyper and the Rebirth of uh, Man's True Knowledge, uh, which I would recommend to you, a little orange pamphlet, uh, to give uh, a nutshell evaluation of this man. Now, Kuyper, who also wrote five huge volumes on systematic theology, sought to ground theology, philosophy, and every other science solely in a Christian life and worldview based upon the scriptures, and also based on God's covenant with Adam as renewed after the fall in Christ Jesus. A very important work of, of Kuiper, not a very large one, Het Verbot Chutz, the covenant of God, I would love to see translated into English. It has never been done, to my uh, knowledge. Kuyper has had an enormous influence in South Africa, one reason being he was violently pro-South African and anti-British in the, uh, uh, in the South African war against England, 1899 to 1902, and this gave his ideas tremendous uh, input into South Africa when she began to recover after losing that war. Uh, Kuyper felt that the Holy Scriptures are to be fundamentally presupposed in all fields of knowledge. Almighty God and the creator of the universe, he said, has subjected all of his creatures, including all social relationships, to divine ordinances based upon his own sovereign will. Consequently, everything in nature and society has a relative sphere sovereignty over against every other creature, but not, of course, over against the holy sovereign God. Therefore, individual, family, school, university, factory, business, church, state, and nation all have their own sphere of influence free from the intrusion of the other spheres. This sphere sovereignty is grounded not in national historical development as Grun held, but is grounded in the order of creation itself. As Kuyper remarked, there is not as much as one breadth of the universe, in respect of which Jesus Christ cannot say, give that to me, that's mine. However, although the triune God created the universe, the whole world has now been cursed as a result of the fall of man. Yet the second person of eternity has now become the mediator of salvation. As the risen Messiah and glorified Son of Man... He is right now exercising full authority over all spheres of life, not only in the church, where his authority is recognized, but even outside of the church in other spheres where his authority is not or hardly recognized. But still, said Kuiper, and here we see an inconsistency that has begun to snowball, still, the work of Christ as mediator of salvation and as re-creator is restricted to the field of special grace. It's restricted to the church and to the members of the church alone. In the other spheres of life outside of the church, Christ rules not by special grace, says Kuiper, but by common grace. He only rules as mediator in creation. This has become a very serious problem with Kuiper today. Now to Kuiper. All men are religious, and they possess divinely implanted semin religionis or the seed of religion as well as the sensus divinitatis or the sense of deity of God's existence not merely in their intellect their will and their emotions but in their entire being which is still the image of God in the broader sense even after the fall man's religion is now twisted by sin and it can only be corrected by a divine act of regeneration. Regeneration, however, affects not merely a man's intellect or will or emotions, but his entire being, with his heart as its religious root. So, when once a man is truly regenerate, his views of everything else, and therefore even of all of the sciences, which previously rooted in the apostate faith of his apostate heart must now root in the christian faith of his regenerated heart. Therefore says Kuyper, to say that a christian has less need of philosophy than an unbeliever has is nothing else than an expression of spiritual sluggishness and misunderstanding. Now Kuyper is best known in the United States for his very short book of stone lectures on Calvinism and culture which he rendered while visiting this land. Uh, But uh, much more important is his monumental three-volume work of cultural products, analysis of the cultural products of the unregenerate, entitled Common Grace, but still more importantly his equally monumental three-volume plea for culturally gifted Christians to get involved in promoting a specifically Christian culture entitled for the king pro reggae. Very important from the point of view of law is Kuiper's equally monumental practical blueprint to move toward the Christian seizure of power in Holland called Our Program. That is a tremendous book. He wrote it when he was entering politics and in some thousand pages outlined how he was going to take power in Holland and he did and then having ruled Holland for a while and unfortunately having been defeated and voted out of power he then wrote his political memoirs Anti-Revolutionary Statecraft in which he expounds the principles of Calvinism as he was able to implement them while in charge of the nation while in charge of the nation by the way He managed to get erected a system of Christian Calvinistic private schools from one boundary of the country to the other and to uh, encourage the development of Christian trade unions to challenge the socialist trade unions that had been the only trade unions in Holland before his rise to power. He insisted in terms of God's law that the Sabbath should be hallowed in public life by limiting the Sunday employment of public servants to necessary military activities and upholding legislation to procure silence during public worship and to ensure the cessation of normal worldly business. He also insisted that private citizens should close their businesses and wear proper clothing on the Lord's day. Today, many who claim to adhere to Kuiper have tried to make him into some kind of a socialist. So I want to close this section on Kuiper by quoting from what he says in his debate against the socialist truestra in the Dutch Congress in 1902. Quote Kuiper I regard the contrast between Marxism and Christianity as absolute, between the historical deterministic materialism of Marx Uh, because that materialism is an absolute cosmological system which comprehends all things, well now, just as universally does Christ control the totality of things, so does Marx and his followers through him also desire to control the totality. Therefore we must ask, can those who confess Christ hesitate for one moment? The Marxist system is a system which inquires... What shall I eat? What shall I drink? That's what elevates it to the principal consideration of human existence, and which attributes no other value to all of the other issues of life, other than they are able to develop automatically from the relationships of economic existence. But we may never forget that scripture says, Take no thought saying what shall we eat, or wherewithal shall we be clothed, for after all of these things do the heathen seek. Our Lord has clearly spoken what profiteth a man if he gain the whole world but lose his soul. Now Creper was dead right that the church is just one aspect of the kingdom. He was right in opposing the godless atheistic totalitarianism of communism with the godly theistic totalitarianism of Calvinism he was right in saying that God alone is absolutely sovereign he was right in saying that God gives this sovereignty to Christ over all things and not just sovereignty over the church he was right that God the Son as mediator of creation uh, has this sovereignty over all things even in Genesis 1 but there is a discrepancy in Kuyper, which is becoming more and more serious today. In his work, The Locus De Magistratu, concerning the duties of the magistrates, Kuyper, uh, on the one hand, says that Christ incarnate rules the Church through His special grace, but that it is only as the pre-incarnate Christ, or rather as the Son of God, that he rules everything else by his common grace. This is a serious discrepancy. Kuiper is further wrong in having allowed democracy to have affected his Calvinism in demanding the universal franchise, at least for all adult males in Holland. This split the anti-revolutionary party with the more aristocratic or limited franchise people continuing separately from Kuiper in what they called the Christian Historical Party under the leadership of uh, De Savonin Lohmann, L-O-H-M-A-N and others. Kuiper was absolutely wrong in calling for the revision of Article 36 of the Belgic Confession that we dealt with at length yesterday. It has indeed led to the neutralization of the Dutch state and its abandonment of the desire to be a Christian state, and he had a serious disagreement with the great Philip Hudemacher on this point of Article 36 Uh, Van Ruler, the theocrat today being the heir to Hudemacher over against the heirs of Kuiper who have degenerated into neutralism in this field and horror of horrors when you open Kuiper's otherwise great anti-revolutionary statecraft and with some sympathy of course uh, learn of his rule in over Indonesia, Dutch Indonesia at that time before Indonesia became independent that just because less than 5% of the Indonesians were Christians at that time and 95% Mohammedans therefore, says Kuiper, it would be wrong and inappropriate to open prayer in the Indonesian Congress calling upon the name of Jesus Christ Muslim can't do that, says Kuiper. Therefore, abandon the name of Christ, says Kuiper, in that prayer, to form a lower, lowest common denominator, a supreme being, an all-seeing eye, a higher hand, to which all kinds of people, Muslims, Christians, and Jews, can all subscribe. Difficult matter, of course, when only 5% of the people are Christians. But let's go back to, uh, to that... Um, A great uh, Earl, Count Jan Nassau of Gelderland that we dealt with yesterday. Here he was, a minority Calvinist in an overwhelmingly Romish part of the world, but still trying to implement the principles of God's word nonetheless. So, Kuiper unfortunately was further wrong in reducing the whole of man's life spheres to a simple threesome. Church, state, and society, as if the family were nothing more than a sub branch of society. Kuiper confuses the human spheres with natural functions such as thought, life, and nature. He confuses com- creational sovereignty with historic autonomy, as Grun did before him. Kuiper denies that the state or the government is a creation ordinance and he says the state and political government would never have developed if man had not fallen into sin he grounds the state in Genesis 9 instead of grounding it in Genesis 1 but how can sin ever create an ordinance Cuyper was so afraid of state absolutism thank God that he wrongly defined the role of the state negatively state thou shalt not do this state thou shalt not do this rather than define the role of the state positively state thou shalt do this state thou shalt do this in the name of the Lord let me say I believe that this too is a weakness of, uh, of orthodox North American Calvinists today too we need to quit uh, saying what the state should not be doing we need to start saying what the state should be doing for Christ's sake otherwise we're going to end up 50 years from today where the anti-revolutionary party of Holland has now ended up if you read Genesis 9 and Romans 13 you will see that it says the state has some very definite positive uh, injunctions such as to reward those that do good to benefit the godly citizenry he regarded the church as organic a living organism but the state he said was merely mechanical here too he removed the soul from the state made it the most some kind of a necessary evil, a contract between people to allow the church to exist rather than an equally important organ of Jesus Christ alongside of the state to further the expansion of God's kingdom. In short, these Kuiperian weaknesses in spite of his genial strengths have gradually led after the death of Kuiper to a neo neo-pietism among many of his followers in the later anti-revolutionary party, under the leadership of Diepenhorst and others, who disqualify the church from preaching about world affairs and say that the church should confine itself just to save souls. That emphasis is hardly distinguishable from American fundamentalism. And so, modern, and the modern anti-revolutionary party quietly allows the leftist Dutch state to expand socialism more and more without much objection. However, let's not put down Abram Kuyper because of these inconsistencies. We all have inconsistencies. Let's look to the greatness of the man. In his Evoto do Draceno, his massive four-volume exposition of the Heidelberg Catechism, he says, Ask whether God has since the fall deserted this splendid creation of his this human race with his image as its whole treasure. In a world, has he deserted this world of his in order that, casting it aside, he may create an entirely new thing of it? And for the elect, the answer of the scriptures is a decided negative. If we compare mankind as it has grown up out of Adam to a tree, the elect are not leaves, which have been plucked off from the tree, so that a wreath may be braided from them for God's glory, while the tree itself is to be felled and uprooted and cast into the fire. To the contrary, it is the lust that are the branches and the twigs and the leaves which have fallen away from the tree of mankind. While the elect alone remain attached to it, it is not the tree itself which goes to destruction, leaving only a few golden leaflets strewn on the field of eternal light. To the contrary, it is the stem, the tree, the race which abides. What is lost is that which is broken away from the stem and which loses its organic connection with it. In his work on common grace, he says, the Jews are not a vanishing nation. Israel remains. And when once the number of the elect nears completion and the end of the world is at hand, The irrevocable election of God shall again reveal itself gloriously among the same Jews in order to perfect the number of the called and the elect even out of Israel so that the entire preordained Israel may be saved. Together with the tens of thousands of the blessed from Israel as it existed before the days of Bethlehem and the tens of thousands who subsequent to Pentecost unite in the Hosanna to the Son of God the new multitude out of Israel shall come to God and his anointed one. And this vast number of Israel from the people of the covenant of old shall enter into the coming glory of Christ with the hosts of those that are gathered in from amongst the other nations. He tells us in his massive work Pro reggae, every heathen temple has to be abolished, every priest Uh, has to be demolished every priest craft to be abolished every idol to be exposed in its nothingness every human soul is to be commanded to yield to the honor of Christ there can be no question of coordination even subordination of other religions to Christianity is not sufficient all other religions have to disappear as sinful and God dishonoring Nothing else except Christianity is to remain, and the dominion of the King of Christendom is being recognized and acknowledged over all the earth. We are working for the future, he says in his biography. We are not concerned with the seeming victory of the moment, but with the final triumph. With us the question is not what influence can we exert now, but what power can we exert fifty years hence? Not how few men we have today, but how many will arise out of the younger generation who will be men of our principles. We know how to practice patience, and he had just taken half a million people out of a nation of nine or ten million into the new denomination he formed. We know how to practice patience. We know that the fruit cannot be plucked before the harvest time has come. Yet we also know that the hour of victory will someday come. And then he says, the consummation must bring us not only to a transition of the church militant to the church triumphant, and not only to a gathering of the kingdoms of this world into the kingdom of heaven, also that what God has hidden even in the realms of nature and the life of the world must first be brought to light to the praise of his name before the end can commence. Here is a solid denial of the doctrine of the imminent return of Christ. He believed in the definite and final return of Christ. But only after the development of all of the world's art and culture and sciences. You know, Kuiper says that after the Reformation, the church experienced a subsequent decline as a result of formalism, rationalism, pietism, and spiritualism. But Kuiper rejected the spiritualistic rendering and understanding of the eschatological parts of the Bible as a too one sided understanding. He said these spiritualistic renderings betrayed the tendency from the very beginning to ascribe significance to practically only the spiritual enjoyments in the eternal glory which is to come. There is nothing puzzling or strange in the fact he said that at the end of the prophecies of the book of Revelation mention is made of a city in contradistinction to the country surrounding that city. This means nothing less then the all-embracing difference between agricultural life and urban life will continue even in the hereafter. That he says in his mammoth four-volume work on the consummation. Now, we need to be sober and careful here, but it will not do to discover merely a symbolical expression of the spiritual in all of this. Together with a life in the state of glory, a world is required in which we must live both body and soul. From Romans 8, this appears to be the case of the animal world, in what is revealed there about the creature. It further appears to be a much higher excellency, that is, will then be attributed to the tree of life in Revelation 22, than the vegetable kingdom possesses on this present earth now. And even though this is of course part symbolic, nevertheless there is the indication of a much higher development of power literally in the vegetable kingdom to come than is known at the moment. And then Kuiper attacks the pietists with their idea of an airy-fairy pie or rather non-pie but spiritual uh, non-pie in the sky by and by. He says all these people they naturally believe that there will be a resurrection of the flesh Because it is taught so definitely in the Bible But they don't rejoice in the resurrection of the flesh They don't exult in the resurrection of the flesh They would prefer for it not to be there They would even demand that it should rather be omitted But then, what would these people do with a new earth? A new earth which to suit their expectations Would have to possess a dematerialized nature A nature in which no rose of Sharon would ever be allowed to blossom, an earth in which no lark would ever be allowed to sing its song to God. Kuyper has rightly insisted in his common grace that holding fast to the lines of Revelation 14 verse 13, that if we die in Christ, our toils and our labors terminate at death, but our works, the fruits or acquisitions or results of our labor, accompany us, Accompany us unto everlasting life, not only our spiritual works, but also our ordinary human acquisitions. The honor and the glory of the nations, according to Revelation 21 24 through 26, will be brought into the New Jerusalem, says Kuiper. They will come from the English and the German nations, from Venezuela and Argentina, even from the ancient Egyptians and Babylonians, and the Greeks and the Romans implying that these acquisitions do not simply pass away and become annihilated in a general conflagration of the world, but that they will have a permanent significance even for the new Jerusalem on the new earth. Moreover, the fact that the tree of life will grow on the new earth, that the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, Revelation twenty-two two ensures that the cultural disparity between one individual and another, between one nation and others, here and now on earth, will then be smoothed away on the new earth to come. But even then, after that, our human life on the new earth will never freeze into monotony and uniformity, century after century. Even then, there will always be an ever richer culture to which saved humanity will be able to aspire even on the new earth. Well, another very great thinker, almost of the caliber of Kuiper, was the famous dogmatician, philosopher, psychologist, politician, and educationalist, Hermann Barfink, 1854 through 1921. We find his works, especially in his philosophy of revelation and in his Christian view of life, He was a moderate realist. His philosophy proceeded from everyday experience. He grounded his doctrine of knowledge in his doctrine of being, but he grounded that in revelation. The three persons of the ontological trinity, said Barfink, eternally reveal themselves to one another, and they know whatever will come to pass. The entire cosmos, both in its origin and in its present structure, is a revelation of God who thus reveals himself to man externally in nature, internally in human consciousness, and also in the Logos, the creative Word, the word made flesh, and the inscripturated word, as the source of all of the principles of theology, philosophy, and all of the special sciences. In his Reformed Dogmatics, Warfink tells us, B-A-V-I-N-C-K, it is probable that the number of the elect from Israel will be much greater in the latter ages than it was in Paul's century or in the later times or even in our own day. There's no reason at all to deny this. Much rather does the extension of the gospel among all nations raise the expectation that a continually increasing number that a continually increasing number will be saved from Israel as well as from the Gentiles. The believer cannot rest content in his faith, but he must make it the point of vantage from which he mounts up to the source of election, listen to this, and presses forward to the conquest of the entire world. Last missions, he tells us, is the great work of Jesus Christ by which... After his completed mediatorial works, Christ is drawing all nations to his salvation and is making them participants of the gifts which he acquired for them. Missions is the church in action, essentially nothing other than the mighty action of Christ himself which he performs through his church, by which in the period toward the consummation the church is calling the nations unto conversion, and unto faith in Christ, so that they may become his disciples, and be engrafted by baptism into the community of those who expect the consummation of the kingdom. In the next lecture, we will finish off Dutch thought from Giesink, the successor of Kuiper through to the great Van Ruler, who has just died in Holland, and then, against that background, constantly influencing South Africa, we will start in South Africa at the beginning of its colonization in 1652 and bring it through 1980 and the plans in the decades ahead. Thank you.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books